There are some corners of the universe which have bred the most terrible things. Things which act against everything we believe in. The Doctor Who podcast, for example. Welcome back. It's Who and Company, episode 80. And for our Doctor Who podcast listeners, it's DWP special number 29. I'm Drew. And I'm Brent. To kick off Who and Company's eighth season, we're delighted to welcome James and Michelle back to the podcast to discuss the newest lost episode of Doctor Who to be released as an animated special. This time around, it's season four's The Underwater Menace. Did we like it? Maybe. Are we going to tell you what we think? You betcha. So prepare yourselves for the above-water menace that is Who and Company. And all that's coming up right after this. Just give me a clue, Professor. West of Gibraltar, south of the Azores. The Atlantic Ridge, what does that suggest to you? Ancient temples under the sea. But that's not possible. That's only a legend. Go on, go on, Doctor. We're on the ancient kingdom of Atlantis. Yes. Yes. And this is not the perfect place to complete my work. But how did you get them to accept you? Surely science is in opposition to ancient temple ritual and idol worship. I gave them a sugar-coated pill. I have promised to lift Atlantis out of the sea. It's that time of the year again. Time to discuss the most recent lost episode of Doctor Who to be animated, and also to kick off Who and Company's eighth season. So, once again, we are teaming up with our co-hosts from the DWP, the always reliable James and Michelle. Welcome back to Who and Company. Oh, it's good to be here again. Feels like I was just here. (laughs) (laughs) And in many ways, if you were just examining our hearts, you're always here. Oh, oh. As for James, though. Oh, no, no. No, I, I'm sorry. I did. I don't think I made that clear. We were just talking about Michelle. Okay, yeah. <laughs> hey, James. I'm going to mess the, uh, it up. Nah, um. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to be here. <laughs> Listen, if anyone's going to fall out of this conversation, it is going to be me. <laughs> well, it's 2024. Last year's behind us. The 60th anniversary is behind us. So how are we feeling? about the state of our favorite show coming into a new year. I feel really good. Uh, and, and I'm coming off a, the high of just having shown my father the third David Tennant special, so the debut of Shudi Gatwa last night. Uh, he hadn't seen it yet. And uh, so I've just relived that experience and, and got to watch someone else get all weepy-eyed. And um, I'm I'm really looking forward to this new year and the new season. And we had four specials, all of which were good, in my opinion. And yeah, I feel great. Weepy-eyed, Michelle. Uh, Was that because he was crying because he was incredibly moved or because it was so appallingly bad that uh, tears just came came streaming down his face? For for the same reason you and I also wept when we saw the third special, which meant that he was touched by by how it landed and and the send send off for David's doctor uh, or non-send off and the the welcome (laughs) of Shooty's doctor. It was just joy all around. So much joy that there were tears. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes. Now, obviously, that's not my natural state, um, yeah, being joyful all the time. And yet I can't really think of anything uh, equally pessimistic to, to level things up, really, because I'm in a very similar place, really, with uh, with my Doctor Who. Uh, I think I'm the most comfortable with the show that I've been in some time. I'm really anticipating what's coming up in May, or at least going to start in May. Um, and yeah, I just hope that the momentum is sustained. Um, lots of Doctor Who in uh, various different forms um, here in the UK. Uh, lots of screenings of uh, old classic Who. Uh, tomorrow, um, as we record, I'm going to see 
a screening of um, An Adventure in Time and Space with Phil and Adam from the Staggering Stories podcast. Um, and just, just to top it all, they're going to screen episode four of The Celestial Toymaker. And, and these events are becoming a little bit more uh, frequent now. The BFI, uh, they've always supported uh, Doctor Who and the events that they're putting on are increasing in number two. So generally speaking, I'm quite happy with the way Doctor Who is at the moment. Have they chosen which episode or which story they're going to show from season 15 yet? They have. What one do you think they're going to show? I would say Horror Fang Rock. You would say right. Uh-huh. Yay! <laughs> I, I, I was championing Underworld. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, no, I, I think I've... I can't, can't, James, do you remember which one I chose for my classic Doctor Who uh, from the or Desert Island? Was it Fang Rock or was it um, City of Death? I'm afraid I'm going to have to plead the fifth. Um, I, I don't recall. Um, yeah, I don't either. But it's one of those two are my absolute favorites of them, the classic series. Um, I, I just, depending on my mood, those are my go-to. So to, the idea of being able to see Horror Fang Rock with mm. uh, what I'm going to assume is the new animation and, and some of the cleanup on it uh, on the big screen, it sounds like an absolute delight. Uh, I'm afraid the tickets are a bit pricey and out of my range at this moment, but uh, I wish you all the best for. Well, it's only because your tickets on. includes an airfare as well. <laughs> yeah, that's that is true. I, I just want to jump back to something that James said. I don't think I've ever really thought of the term "comfortable" as being uh, such a compliment for for anything, but I, I have to agree 100. percent I feel very comfortable with the state of Doctor Who at this moment in time. Um, I mean, if the the four specials that we saw in 2023 and your 2024 predictions are any indication, I'm really looking forward to this year. Brent, how about you? I'm excited about this new season. Um, Also, the publicity this show is probably going to have over here. I don't think we've really had a lot of Doctor Who publicity in the States since that period between um, Matt Smith's first season and the 50th anniversary. Um. But I'm really excited to see Shooty Gatwa's first season as a Doctor and the upcoming spinoffs, whenever and whatever they may be. <laughs> You're just hoping for those points from the predictions list. And that. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this is a bit of a rumor, but we it does kind of go along with what we're talking about. Um, as of last night, the rumors going around that this might only have been the only t- this season that's coming up is the only time that we're going to be seeing Ruby Sunday. Um, that Millie Gibson is in fact leaving the show after the first season. Um, again, not confirmed by folks yet, but um, if this turns out to be true, how are we feeling about that? I think I'm. A mix of disappointed and kind of resigned. Um, disappointed in that she seemed like she was going to be so much fun. And I really like to see a companion-doctor relationship that, that builds and kind of stands the test of time. Um, but the resigned part is I trust RTD's storytelling. And you know, if the rumors are true, it, it sounds like she may get a complete story that you know has a that resolves. Uh, and that's a good thing too, to actually plan ahead and have a story that even if it's a shorter story, that is a powerful story and you know where it's going. I think some of the, the best limited series we've seen on, on TV lately have been exactly those kind of things where they, they had a limited number of shows, but knew where they wanted to, to end it. You know, we talk about sticking the landing and if you actually know how you're going to stick the landing and write the right story to get you there, that's so much more powerful than kind of limping along so all right we'll see where did the rumor come from um the internet thanks (laughs) (laughs) wonderfully illuminating no um i i I am not the kind of dedicated journalist who is going to trace this rumor to its source uh but considering that almost 90 percent of my social media is Doctor Who news, and the other 10% is cute videos of raccoons. Um, I mean, (laughs) basically, as soon as something like this comes out, uh, I can't scroll or swipe or whatever it is that I'm doing on the internet uh, without seeing something along those lines. So Mm. I I just saw it it came up like a couple of hours right before bed last night, read a couple of things, thought, interesting. Uh, And I just want to echo what Michelle said. I think you might be onto something... 
um, this J. Michael Straczynski of it all, if that you have a good story that you're going to tell, maybe she only needs to have one season. And considering that the kind of number one mystery is sort of like who left her by her, you know, on the church on Ruby Road, um, maybe that's a complete story that's going to doesn't need a continuation. But you also said something about these iconic pairings. And, oh, it does seem kind of like a bummer to only have one season with a new Doctor's companion. But we'll see. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting when you look at how RTD generally tells stories. I mean, first and foremost, regardless of how long a companion stays uh, in the series, the season arcs are always geared around them. And, and sure. the story is yeah. told. Um, I mean, it, it's quite explicit. I mean, you take a look at the very first episode in 2005. It was even called Rose. And the whole story was all about her journey with the Doctor. Um, I think that's something that is central and common to most of the stories Russell T. Davis tells. And that's not just confined within Doctor Who. You very rarely see everything through the lens of the main character. And I also think there is a propensity these days to get things done quickly. Uh, so I think the way TV production is is moving is that, you know, gone are the days where you had to wait two or three years to get a resolution to a plot. I mean, do you remember not that long ago, we were waiting, I think it was two years for three episodes of Sherlock, and people just accepted that. That doesn't happen anymore. I don't think the attention span of the modern audience is there. Uh, so I suspect the the story uh, relating to Ruby will be done this year. Plus, if my prediction or one of my predictions are correct, and Shooty is only staying for two seasons, then it will be interesting to see how he operates and interacts with someone other than Ruby for his second season. So although I've got no idea whether this rumour has any credibility or, or indeed where it originated, wouldn't be surprised. Um, and I don't really care either, to be honest, provided the story is sound. That's fair true. enough. And we've only seen one episode with her out of a possible nine or or seventeen if she's here for two seasons. But companions, like you said, companions only stay a couple of years anyway, usually. Uh, but I did enjoy her in the Christmas special more so than most of the other modern companions. I, I really liked her. I'm, I'm interested to see where she goes, what she does. Well, what's happening now? We're just beginning to land. Hold tight, everyone. Land? Don't be scared, Jane. It's all right, really. I get a sort of queer feeling. I mean, we never know what we're going to find, do we? Ah, that's the fun. Stand by. Here we go. It's a rumor, so it's credibility? Not sure. What is more credible uh, is our next section, and the reason why we're here. As listeners may or may not know... We invite James and Michelle to join us every January to discuss an animated Lost episode, and this year we are looking at Season 4's The Underwater Menace, starring Patrick Troughton, Annika Wills, Michael Craze, and Fraser Hines. We're all set. I think we're all ready to go, so there's nothing left to do but get this out of the way. Brent? Nothing in the world can stop us now! So there we go. Uh, So, The Underwater Menace, uh, brought to us so many years later in an animated form, Let's just go with quick thoughts on what we think about it before we go into more specific details. Michelle, let's start with you. What'd you think of the Underwater Menace animated? Based on what I've heard of it, I think I like it better than most people. Uh, I actually kind of enjoyed watching these, um, so I'll leave it there for now. Ooh, okay. James, how about you? Terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Good one-word review. Brent? Uh, Well, I'm with Michelle. I I liked it. Uh, as far as an animation, the story, eh, well, the four main characters were good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, True. well, I'm, I'm glad I listed them off then. Uh, and as for me, I thought it was boring as all get out. So there we go. Uh, I, I love that we have a nice blend going into this. Um, before we get into more specific thoughts, I'm kind of curious what everyone's experience with this story is before watching the animation. So, um, you know, whether or not you watch reconstructions, telesnaps, target novelizations, anything along those lines, um, maybe an audio version of it. So, uh, we started with, uh, Michelle last time, James, how about you? What is your, your experience with the underwater menace prior to watching this 
animated series? Well, well prior to this release, uh, not much really. Um, my exposure has been fairly limited to the to the soundtrack, and I'm familiar with pretty much every story that either is completely missing or, or partially missing. Um, so I I remember 20 years or so ago listening to the CD the BBC released uh, with the with the soundtrack and um, not I don't really have very clear memories of whether I enjoyed it or, or not I, I know it's not particularly memorable um, so when episode three was recovered and that was 2011 I think I had another opportunity to watch you know, actual live action Doctor Who uh, that I had not seen before. So I clearly took that opportunity and was, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, I suppose, but um, compared to the excitement I had prior to, to watching it, uh, it dissipated almost immediately, uh, thinking I wouldn't have minded too much had it not been recovered. So the story I, I'm not a fan of uh, for various different reasons uh, that I'm sure we'll touch on later on uh but the animated version and which is obviously what led me to revisit it this time around is beautiful and it's fantastic i'm i've said many times i'm not a connoisseur of the different methods used to bring these old stories back to life but i liked this one <laughs> i thought that was good in fact for once i enjoyed watching the animated version more than the actual episodes that they hadn't lost <laughs> uh, and it retained my interest the colors retained my interest plus it was subtitled uh, whereas the original episodes were not and I struggled on occasion to make out some of the dialogue but uh, that really is it not not massive exposure really to this story over the years. How about you Michelle? Uh, at some point in the years past I had watched this which means I must have watched the stories that we have existent and probably a reconstruction of the others. <clears throat> so I did have some memory of that. I've seen that. Uh, I don't remember strong reactions either way to that. It was it was quite a while ago. Uh, I do have the Target novel, which means it's it's likely that I have read the Target novel. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you for sure. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but you know, I these volumes about this story. <laughs> <laughs> but I came into this um, again knowing that received wisdom is that it's terrible, but not remembering feeling it was so terrible whenever it was that I watched it and or read it. Yeah, I never read the novelization. I, that's probably my next big pilgrimage is reading all of those. But I watched the Loose Cannon reconstruction first years ago. Then it was released on DVD, so I saw it then. Then I watched it again for another podcast I did in 2013, which was... Shortly before episode two was found. So this was my first time since then. And, and um, actually the way I watched this one this time was episodes one and two in color animation. Then I watched the existing two and three. And then I watched the color three and four. Brent so, doing his due it diligence took, it took, with it this. It took me a week. Wow. <laughs> but I got it done. So you turned this into a six-parter. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, a story that could have been completed in 20 minutes, you turned it into a six-parter. <laughs> and I'm glad I, mean, I did, because there are some differences between the animation oh, I'm and sure. the story. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, like, I can always rely on you to uh, really take get the most out of this experience. <laughs> so, strangely enough, this is going to surprise, I don't know, maybe some people, maybe nobody. Um, I didn't bother with any of the reconstructions or any of that. I've never seen any of the original footage. Um, it. it it never really appealed to me to watch it with incomplete, but have read the target novelization and, and quite enjoyed the target novelization. Uh, I remember it was one of the harder ones to find before I completed my set. I got it within the last two years. I think it's probably the last Doctor Who book I read. That might be a lie, actually. Um, Day of the Doctor is probably the last one I read, but um, the target, I just remember liking it, thinking it was just kind of fun and kind of wishing we could see it animated. Um, I'm going to echo a little of what James said a moment ago, whereas even though I found the story, looking at it specifically as a story, as to be incredibly boring, I thought the animation was actually quite good with it. So um, I guess maybe that's for for the next section here more than anything else. But yeah, that I was I came into it fairly cold, and 
hadn't really paid attention to uh, any of the received fan wisdom. So I didn't know that people didn't like this one um, until I I watched it and started talking with you. Uh, this is an episode that was written by, and I'm probably going to get this one name wrong, Jeffrey Orm. Does that sound right? It does. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and if I'm also correct, this is the only Doctor Who episode that Orm wrote? Yeah, I think he filled in for a gap in the schedule after a William M's script was discarded. Uh, the same guy who wrote Galaxy 4. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Uh, cool. Might be wrong now. That's purely for my memory. <laughs> I, I did a, just a very cursory kind of study of Orm to see like what kind of stuff they had done prior, um, and I saw that just before doing this Doctor Who story, they wrote an episode of The Avengers, uh, and that made a lot of sense to me because this sort of feels like a less weird episode of The <laughs> Avengers. Like you could see this sort of in an Avengers style story, and I mean that in a in as complimentary as I can. And I shall have redeemed my promise to lift Atlantis from the sea. Lift it to the sky. It will be magnificent. Yes. Bang! 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 Like so. Yes. Just one small question. Why do you want to blow up the world? Why? You, a scientist, ask me why? The achievement, my dear doctor. The destruction of the world. The scientist's dream of supreme power. Nothing in the world can stop me now. Let's talk about the high points. Um, I, I know that I feel like normally I'm, I'm quite optimistic about these stories and I'm coming across as a bit pessimistic about it. Um, so let's maybe start with the higher points, things that we literally liked about the episode uh, and the story itself. Um, Brent, let's start with you. High points. Well, um, Patrick Troughton, period. Yeah, uh, I think he could have added spark to any script he was given. So he did add some humor here. There's like the disguise he has in the courtyard and the knocking on his head like no one's home. That was funny and uh, different little things that he did. Um, also, the animation. I think it's the best animation we've had so far. I think the 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 walking and everything looks more fluid than it ever has. Um. The colors were really vibrant. It just, it looked great. Uh, And like you said, it was more um, interesting than the actual four episodes, the original episodes. Uh, And that's probably um, a directorial choice to to change a couple of things. There are a couple of things that are changed in here that we can discuss later if you want. But uh, Oh, yeah. Those those were the high points for me. Michelle? I want to springboard on what Brent said about Patrick Troughton's doctor, which yes, was a delight. And there was almost a running joke. I don't know if it was meant that way, but in almost every episode, there's this beautiful moment where the doctor bluffs and gets caught bluffing and is like, yeah, well, I don't really know. I mean, you know, it's like, um, I have a secret. Well, no, I actually don't have a secret or, or um, um, you know, that's a good question. I, I wish I had a good answer. And and there was another one towards the end. I can't I can't remember, but it was so funny. And it was in such contrast to, say, uh, Colin Baker, where it was all bluster and pride and or Sylvester McCoy, where there was, you know, scheming and the doctor was a step ahead of everyone. This this is such a sweet doctor that just kind of bumbles in and. He, he's just kind of hanging on by the seat of his pants in terms of, of, of stringing everything together. And, and I, I love that. I thought it, I thought it was, I thought it was funny. I thought it was cute. I agree with Brent about the dress up, the, the way that Troughton's doctor gets, gets dressed up. I like the marketplace scene and the kind of the, a little bit of the world building and, and the kind of the exotic costumes and, um, I love it when Polly gets to wear, at least in the cartoon. I can't remember how that worked in the in the original, but when she wears the fish fish person costume for the last episode or however many it is, um, I actually enjoy that little shells that are dangling, you know, from the headpiece, and um, I liked it. And then another one I liked. Um, oddly enough, I found myself enjoying some of the secondary characters. I mean, at first glance, they come across as two dimensional. Uh, and and certainly Zaroff, you just have to go with the fact that Zaroff is truly insane. Um, you know, there 
most most evil characters in Doctor Who are not. There's there's some motivation, there's you know, some good reason. And so Zaroff is not one of my favorite characters, but I did find myself sort of caring about is it Ara, the, the the servant girl that appears throughout, who's kind of a neat character? Raybo, and again, I may be pronouncing these names wrong, but the priest um, that helps the doctor, that becomes an ally for a while. In fact, I had just scribbled in my notes. I couldn't remember all the details from the other times I've encountered, but I just scribbled in my notes. I like Raybo. And then the next moment, he gets skewered. <laughs> by, <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, they, that's pretty harsh for 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 doctor <laughs> who even on animation um same way with the the king of, of atlantis you know obviously he comes across as kind of shallow because he believes are off to begin with but but by the end of the story he's be- got a little more depth to him so i like that and then of course the double act of jacko and sean um which again <laughs> i think came across well in animation i don't remember being that excited about them before so but there was some you know Sean is going on and on and on and kind of stringing the fish people along, trying to get them to uh, unionize and strike. Um, and Jacko keeps rolling his eyes, even in animation that that didn't have a lot of movement. You could, it was it was just really funny. And and then as they're making their way out of the flooded chambers at the end, I just thought, you know what, these two characters together bring a lot of joy. Um, I would. I want to see Jacko and Sean appear again in in an audio or something. <laughs> Coming soon to Big Finish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and it was fun to see Jamie's first story first. You know, out outside of his um, comfort zone and and see how he reacted. Um, so anyway, I all those pieces, and I think that it probably works better in the animated version than in the original. Um, because I don't remember picking up on all those things before. So um, I, I think the animation has been kind to this story, as kind as you can be to this story. I, yeah, it, it might be a good time for me to go here, because I think um, uh, the, the biggest high point, I think, was the mountain in the opening scene. Um, and, and the low points <laughs> are all of Michelle's high points. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> for me, uh, for for a number of reasons, um, I think the disguises and the bluffs and so on. I mean, whilst Troughton was still trying to find his character, he was experimenting significantly, and I don't know whether that was him just trying to find the portrayal that we eventually see uh, every week and uh, get to know and love, or, or whether or not this was him being directed uh, from Innis Lloyd, perhaps, uh, or, or, or others. Um, in terms of their idea of the second Doctor characterization, but for me, it just feels all over the place. I mean, the disguises just feel like a gimmick. It's like, what can this Doctor do? I know hats, disguises, and an annoying recorder. Uh, so it it just feels as though it didn't really settle down until the Moon Base. Um, I think he's closer to the second Doctor in this story than he was in the Highlanders for sure uh, and elements of Power of the Doctor he's almost, sorry, uh, Power of the Daleks he's almost unrecognisable um, I think there are way too many characters in this story to keep track of Michelle went through just a few of them and even that took about three or four minutes um, I think most of them were caricatures all of them seem to have no discernible reason for being there it just seemed like let's just get every extra we can to um, be in this story let's create a totally pointless market scene for no reason uh, the only good thing about that market scene is that it was actually filmed quite well and you clearly had a, a tracking cam go from one end of the studio to the other I thought that was that was really good um, but uh, I mean, Jacko Jack and Sean, who this desperate attempt to come up with a credible uh, double act, um, totally superfluous when you've got Ben and Jamie so spectacularly underused. And in terms of getting the fish people to rebel, not being funny, they did that in 30 seconds. They literally went into the cave and said, oi, fish people, why don't you withhold food? And they went, ooh, good idea, good idea. <laughs> and, and that was it. That was literally it. Um, it was just a a connection or a series of little scenes that didn't have any point. So um, I think the best 15, the, the best part of the story is the first 15 minutes where they arrive, they all split up, they all get imprisoned again, 
inside of the first 15 minutes so they can restart the story. And that is a really good template for the remainder of this story. Little vignettes, little scenes that uh, just try to distract you from the fact that Zaroff wanted to blow up and destroy the world for no reason other than he thought he can. And the only interlude we get is a magical fish sequence in episode three, which went on for hours as far as I could tell and (laughs) I'm I'm sorry I I don't think this story has got many plus points Um, with the exception perhaps of the TARDIS scenes Uh, I I quite enjoyed seeing this TARDIS crew interact as I as I always do because there are actually very few scenes where they share a decent amount of dialogue and um, the characters have been written for rather than Fraser Hines having to have some of being uh, not Ben, Michael Crazy's lines, uh, just so they could they could share them around. Um, episode four, one last thing I will just say, the dynamic, right, between Jamie and Polly, which you simply do not get to see very often, um, is on display there uh, because they spent the entire episode walking up a cliff. And as soon as they got to the top, they got in the TARDIS and went, <laughs> went off again. I've never seen two characters sidelined so effectively uh, in an early story like this. But um, it's unusual for me um, to to be so down on a particular story, but I prefer Legend of the Sea Devils to this. Um, And and also there are other stories that um, are tainted with received fan wisdom that I I buck against massively. So the Space Pirates I love, Galaxy 4 I love, and even going forward in time, Delta and the Bannerman I will defend to death. And I was desperately hoping I would be able to do that with this, but no, I'm afraid I can't. I think James has kind of covered just about everything. Um, (laughs) So once again, I think the animation, I kind of agree with Brent, I think the animation on this might be the best so far. I think they've gotten some added some shading to the characters that I really liked. There's a lot of acting with his hands that Troughton does that I think is very difficult to do in animation that they did okay with. I mean, again, this is never going to be, you know, on the same par as anything that we'd find in a, in a, in a cinema, right? Like theatrical. I think they're doing the best with the limited budget that they have. And it's, it's beautiful to have this. It's certainly better than not having this. Um, yeah, I thought some of the secondary characters are were quite good. Um, oh, I was going to make a joke about Brent and Michelle taking the high road, and uh, clearly James and I are, <laughs> Jocko and Sean, taking the low road, which they, you know, if you don't know that song, uh, that's, that brief moment makes absolutely zero sense, but we are talking about positives here. Um, I think it's difficult to animate an octopus, and so they've done a really good job with that as well. Uh, I think more Doctor Who episodes need a pet octopus. Um, again, I'm going to echo the fact that it did feel like an Avengers story. Um, it probably could have only been two episodes and been really good. I, I have to ask you, yes, twice you said that now, how? I don't recall an Avengers episode having John Steed in Atlantis or with squids or with someone trying to blow up the world. So what specifically? I'm sorry, has there never you? been an episode of the Avengers where someone's tried to blow up the world? Because I feel like that was like kind of every other episode. It's generally small town mayhem uh, that they have to infiltrate, but uh, you know, there's, there's it's kind of like the that level of um, spy drama where when Avengers is allowed to kind of go off the rails and be a little bit more of the mod bazaar, um, I think this could have fit right in. Did they go to Atlantis? No, they didn't need to. But this is the story where you know, like I think it could have been a more bonkers one, and and my highest point in this is Zaroff because. I love a good mad scientist, and you know that you've got a quality mad scientist when the henchmen uh, are wearing something totally different from what the native people are wearing, the indigenous people are wearing, and they all have big Zs on them. There were big Zs on their belt buckles and big Zs (laughs) on their guns. Ladies and gentlemen, this is how you know you have a quality nemesis uh, in an episode when their initials are prominently displayed. Um, Yeah. Uh, the 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 descent into madness over four episodes is is really great. Um, I think is such an interesting character. Mad scientists are always really great. Um, you know, 
if we're going back to like the, the third doctor areas where it's just what the mad scientists and alien invasions are the two types of stories this this would have been a, this actually probably could have been a quality uh third doctor story as well nothing in the world can stop me now <laughs> doctor you are a comedian <laughs> All right, so that's that's covering the basis of things that we liked. Uh, we'll give Brent and Michelle a, a moment to talk about the things that maybe they didn't like on this one. James, you and I could probably sit this one out for a moment because I feel <laughs> like we've already kind of covered those bases. Um, Michelle, uh, you had a long list of things you liked. Is there anything on that list that, that you weren't a fan of? I didn't really make a list of things I wasn't a fan of. I figured James would fill in all of that. Um <laughs> But I mean, yeah, it's a thin story. Uh, and the science doesn't make sense, of course, about how he thinks he's going to blow up the world. Um, yeah, the fish people are a little bit weird, especially, I think, in the live action versions. Um, and and I, I, the other fault in the logic that bothered me a bit is why don't uh, clearly Zarov's henchmen, some of them are, are trained technicians and, and scientists of some caliber that are running this operation that he has built, why haven't they figured out that what he's going to do is going to kill them all? Um, so yeah, you can't look, you can't scratch too too deeply uh, before you find problems, but, um, but I still enjoyed watching it for the reasons that I said before. So I can't, I can't say it's a completely terrible episode. Sure. Yeah, right. low low point for me. I hate to say it, but Joseph first as Zaroff was so over the top. <laughs> he was just oh, absolutely so horrible. <laughs> he was almost like a Mel Brooks character. Uh, in fact, he reminded me of Gene Wilder and Young Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, um, he was just awful. But and then that that scene that we all remember. If we don't remember anything else, oh, besides the uh, nothing in the world can stop us now. Uh, the other one was um, where the fish people are just swimming around for like the, James the syn- like synchronized an, swimming, like an hour. Yeah, and <laughs> like, what was the point of that? Well, in the animation, that was one of the changes that I really appreciated. Is that they made sense of that scene, and they turned it into um, uh, one of the fish people trying to tell the others that they were no longer going to be slaves. And so it made that scene make more sense. So that that was a plus point, even though we're talking about low points. <laughs> <laughs> Turn a negative into a positive. Well, if James can put so much negative in what what was supposed to be the the high points, uh, you can certainly slip some high points into into your low points. Bearing in mind the context, right? Whenever I watch Doctor Who, I would always rather watch bad Doctor Who than practically anything else. So I am still going to enjoy watching Doctor Who, even if all I can see is uh, is negativity. I, th- I think what I, I will do at some point is is take the time to watch episodes two and three in um, in animated form because my my default is never to watch any version of the story other than the original transmitted version where it exists. And, and that, for me, is where the excitement is in watching these partially um, recovered stories. But um, if they've actually used the format to explain some previously ambiguous or just frankly bizarre decisions uh, made in the original, then, yeah, perhaps it gives me a reason to go back and take a look. I think the I think the animation was kinder to this one. Um, yeah, I think I think it may be a better animated story than otherwise. And my understanding, um, I was scanning the about time entry for this in the about time books before we started recording, is that the actors were not the the, the leads were not happy with this episode either. They they were not episodes or the entire story. Uh, I mean the story that the, right. they were not they were not and and made. Recording was not easy on this one, and kind of nobody was happy. So it that may be a case where the animation smooths some of that out. Well, two things. One, love that James watched the live action stuff instead of the animation when we're here to talk about the animated episode. Two, uh, I, I was going to hold off on saying it. I was assuming someone else would say it, uh, but it needs to be said. This is a terrible story for Polly. Um, she is, aside from a kind of some interesting ideas that she comes up with in the first one. She just screams a lot and is kind of useless. I hate that. I get 
that this is a common practice in the times, but oh, it was really painful to watch. And, and do you know they, they they didn't learn their lesson? And, and this happens time and time again. I think it's the climax to episode one where they're intending to turn her into a fish person for mm-hmm. no apparent reason. Again, you know there are so many parallels with Syl trying to turn Perry into a bird person um, twenty five <laughs> thirty years later, and it, there's plenty of other examples as well where the role of the female companion, regardless of how much she's got to do in the story is woefully wasted. Well, and I will say that throughout, you know, Drew, throughout this story, um, yeah, clearly there was sort of a different standard for the female characters than, than for the male characters. Where I think this story um, salvaged a little bit of that is that I loved when they deferred to Polly early on as the one that knew all the languages. And so Polly yeah. Polly tries to speak to these folks in about four different languages, and they they just, all the male characters kind of acknowledge that, she was the one that was talented with that. And then at, to, at the end, when they're all climbing up those cliffs, there's a point at which Polly um, says, I can't go on. I can't go on. I'm going to just leave me. And I was like, oh, great. But then the very next episode, Ben faints. You know, he's going through the same thing. And Ben, who who should be one of the, you know, strongest and most macho of the people there, um, he also falls and 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 and. So I was like, well, okay, there, there's some balance there. So, <laughs> so yes, it is definitely in this story as it was, you know, during the times, and 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 that bothered me to extent. But in the, but there were other places in which they sort of subverted that. Um, so, eh. I, I, the the most memorable thing about this story, without a shadow of a doubt, is Zaroff's line, and it is something that any Doctor Who fan is aware of, uh, regardless of what they think of the story and i think that really for me is about it phil went to see this right recently at, at the bfi when said, this was launched yeah yeah and he said that line got a a big loud applause uh both times yeah um at the end of episode three and the beginning of episode uh four but uh-huh. then again that's the best way to watch this i mean drew you you always ask us how we watch these uh, these stories uh, before we discuss them um, and without a shadow of a doubt whatever option or viewing method we use it would be secondary to us all sitting in a room watching it together and regardless of these um, down points um, or, or complaints um, that I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, coming out with it would be so much better when you watch it with a bunch of other Doctor Who fans and I think that's what mm. Phil experienced and, and the BFI does that um it, it screened goodness knows why but it screened mind warp uh when tried of a time lord come out and and again the reports that come out of that event was it was one of the best possible events because the story was so bad <laughs> and um yeah i i just love to to sit and watch um these stories with uh with fellow doctor who fans one of the things that i have experienced um as a, a cinephile is that i very rarely jump at the chance to watch what I would consider a good or great film with a group of people in an audience because I don't know what it is, but the tendency for for film goers, especially, I don't know, especially going with friends is to kind of mock what we see. But if you say, I've got a really bad movie, do you want to get together and watch it? Uh, That is always something that I'm going to jump at because it becomes more of a shared cinematic experience. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't go see something great with your friends. i just thinking that overall, on average, watching a bad film that you can all mock together or laugh at or laugh with is going to be quite fun. And so I think you're absolutely right. If the four of us are sitting in a room together, we're going to enjoy this a lot more than, than we probably did individually. And, and that's just a kind of probably fairly universal. Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I think certainly with films, it's slightly different because when you go watch a film, normally it's at a theatre and by definition you're watching it with other people. But bearing in mind, certainly within the UK, probably also in America, bearing in mind classic Doctor Who was only really available on, on PBS, fans' experiences of these stories was very solitary. And so mm, when you do true. have the opportunity to, to watch together as a group, it has that added um Ziz, zuz, zaz, zaz. Thing, um, that uh, the BFI have managed to tap into so well uh, when they screen screen these stories, which is why I was absolutely clamouring for Underworld to be shown uh, as, as part of the season fifteen celebrations. 
Okay, so speaking about solitary watching, um, James, I think you're the only person who has the opportunity because this DVD Blu-ray has not been released in the United States yet. So it is in the UK. You have a physical copy. Uh, I know it's not a visual medium, but he did just hold it up. So what is available um, on the physical media and in terms of VAM? Anything interesting? Yeah, well, well, first of all, it contains everything that was released on the DVD version uh, back in 2008. 13, I think it was. Um, but there's not much new stuff. Um, so there, there is one 30-minute making of um, featurette, which I've yet to see. Um, and, and that's something which uh, I am looking forward to, to, to watching. And also, there is somewhat bizarrely, perhaps, and I remember Brent us discussing this when mm. this release was announced, there is an episode of something called The Man from Midst. I think that's correct. It's in such small writing, I can't quite make out the, the final word. Um, reading it on the back of oh, the blue. Oh, there's an I in there. I think it's Midits. Midits, is it? It's Midits. Okay. Well, that is a totally random episode uh, yeah. from 60s TV uh, that also features Patrick Troughton. And is it Joseph? I can't remember his surname. Faust? First. First, yes. Mm-hmm. Um so they've painfully put this back together again because it doesn't exist in its entire format. Uh, so they've taken lots of different um, pieces of it and edited it all together. Uh, they haven't been able to produce as high quality um, uh, an end product as we would normally associate with stuff on Doctor Who DVDs and Blu-rays. Uh, and I've yet to watch anything more than about 10 minutes of it. But it, it's certainly an interesting um, piece of van, um, but everything else is, as I said, is on the original DVD. There is one other thing, actually. There was a there, there was an intro uh, piece from Fraser Hines when he looked young, and I mean really young, not a single grey hair, uh, but clearly not quite as um, as young as he was when he plays Jamie. Uh, and I don't know whether this was for the DVD, so he could introduce. I think it was episode three um or whether or not this was for something like lost in time and i've not watched any episodes on the lost in time collection for a very long time so i've completely forgotten how they presented uh th- those episodes i know where it came from uh there were a series of uh, vhs tapes that came out in the 90s um the hartnell years the Tratnell- Troughton ah, years right. it's from the Troughton years and they put episode three on there, and that was uh, Fraser Hines introducing that. That's where that came from. Well, that would explain his youth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> End scene. <laughs> <laughs> or in podcasting terms, sting. Yeah. <laughs> Musical interlude. Or we could we could just do the um the stings like <laughs> nothing in the world can stop me now. We're all from the DWP. Do we have anything we want to plug coming up? Um, actually, we just released our predictions episode for this year. Drew, we need one from you. Mm-hmm. I mean, listen, we we we're fully aware that this is generally just a a wish list, right? But um, you all know my predilections for the the episodes. The the Keith Boak directed episodes from season one aren't considered particularly good. What I would really like is for RTD to get a chance to re-examine the the Raxacoricophalopatorians, you know, the Slavine. <laughs> so my prediction is, our deepest wish is, we get another Slavine episode wow. uh, in 2024. So I know that someone predicted that we weren't going to get any kind of repeat characters. I hope that turns out to not be the case. I think you're right. There are uh, already created costumes out there for it. But I think the Slavine have a lot of potential. That's what I would like to see. Whether or not they are classy enough to pull that off, I don't know. But uh, that would be that would be my prediction for twenty for the 2024 season. Because wow. think about it. We saw the Slavine in technically the first series. Why not in the new season one get more Slavine? Well, they, they, they could be an entire podcast answering that question. But um, I, I, I wonder whether or not they'll go there. I, I think it will just be uh, a hark, harking back to 
a bygone era. Plus, the Slovene were used so many times in the Sarah Jane adventures as well. I don't know whether or not the costumes, I don't think you call them prosthetics really, basically just the costumes, um, would feel in place now. With, but um, but just think how good a, Slo- a Slovene would look in a fish person bodysuit. Well, that's that's a fetish that I'm simply not going to indulge. But <laughs> too late. <laughs> yeah, maybe the characters of the Saladine have just sort of run out of gas by now. <laughs> it's even worse than one of my lines. <laughs> We're not topping that, folks. <laughs> well, anything else coming up on the DWP that uh, everybody should be looking out for? Oh, yes. Okay. I suppose we ought to um, let people know what we've got planned so we can disappoint them when it doesn't materialize this <laughs> way. Uh, we have a quiz coming up very shortly. Um, and the only thing that's stopping that from being recorded is trying to schedule a date. So with a bit of luck, that will be online end of January, possibly beginning of February. So uh, we need it, we need to get that clip from, from Underwater Menace of the Doctor saying, I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't remembered bits of dialogue from the Underwater Menace, I must say. So, um, Although I did notice one thing none of us mentions was that there was a reference to Wild Blue Yonder. Yes! <laughs> yeah, you know, that's right. In this story. Can't believe we missed that. And um, he doesn't he he doesn't call it the Wild Blue Yonder. He calls it something else. It's a it's a misquote reference to the Wild Blue Yonder. He said Wide Blue yep. Yonder. Wide yeah. Blue Yonder is it? Wow. Okay. Um, but yeah, it did so, make me think of that story. Yeah. Um, what else have we got? Um, we're at uh, the Riverside Studios uh, tomorrow, as I mentioned earlier, to see an adventure in space and time, which is where the Underwater Menace was made. Uh, so that will be interesting. We'll be able to bring you some um, coverage of of that. And I think for the time being, that might be everything that I've got planned in my brain, Brent, for the, for the DWP. Michelle, have I missed anything? Are you and Drew recording anything, or um, I need to send I need to, on your radar? I, I need to send him a note. But do you want to say anything about the echo chamber? Oh, we echo could chamber. Do. Yeah, um, echo yeah, chamber. Echo. Yeah, thank you, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> I think the comedy part of this podcast passed a little while ago. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Michelle. Then you talk about the echo chamber. Oh no, it's just a, a side project uh, of the DWP that James and I have been working on, where we are uh, beginning to listen through the monthly range, starting from the beginning of uh, Big Finish of the Doctor Who stories. So we'll be releasing those as sort of mini episodes uh, called the Echo Chamber, um, and that should be coming soon. Yeah, the first three episodes are in the can, uh, and they review the first three monthly ranges, which uh, started in 1999. And uh, when uh, Michelle said this was a side project, uh, I think the tenuous completion date is 2073. So, you know, we've got quite a bit to record and get online. I think that really is it. I I love the image of you and I recording in 2073. (laughs) What? What did you say? That's all right. I won't be able to hear you. Uh, you'll ignore me even more than you normally do. It's going to be great. It'll be listening. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing different. <laughs> Brent will still be editing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I guess there's nothing else to do, but thank you both for joining us uh, on this episode. So thank you both for joining us on this episode. Oh, our Absolute pleasure. pleasure. <laughs> And thank you for joining us for Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Stay for the company.